Because today we're going to dig into, begin digging into what is called the pastoral epistles, which is made up of three books in our Bibles in our New Testament. And it has been a little bit of a while since we have looked at letters. Uh, like, so we looked at Mark recently, then we looked at Acts recently. They're kind of narratives. We went into the Old Testament prophecies. And so now we're going to get into some teaching books. Uh, not interesting stories, but teaching books. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's a little change of pace for us. So it should be kind of this process of us getting used to uh, digging into that sort of material. But I do think the Lord uh, has something for us, a very important thing for us. Uh, and I, I look forward to what he's going to teach us. So why don't we uh, find our passage of scripture today? Uh, it is the book of First Timothy. And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray and dedicate this next period of time unto the Lord. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we are ever cognizant of the fact that you have blessed us with the gift of your holy word. And Lord, you, uh, you want to teach your people and you minister through your word. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that brings light and illumination and understanding. And so, Father, as we dig into this book of 1 Timothy and then the books of 2 Timothy and Titus, we, we pray for your wisdom. But we know that some of the things that we're going to see in these passages may not be the way that our world operates. But this is what you have for us through your Holy Word. And you are uh, the God of all wisdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts prepared to receive, that you would minister your truth and that we would be receptive to it, and not just to learn it, but, Lord, to apply these things. And so, Father, we want to be instructed by the Scripture, Lord, that brings, uh, that is useful for teaching us and training us and correcting us, rebuking us that we might walk in godliness. So bless your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking at the pastoral epistles. Now, an epistle is different from an apostle. Make sure you know that. That's an important lesson to begin with here. This is a book written by an apostle that is called an epistle. An epistle is just a word. It simply means a letter. Now, if you're going to write a letter to your friend around the corner, you're probably not going to call it an epistle. It usually has, it's a little more significant than that. But these are letters, uh, and all of those letters that we have in the New Testament that were written by people like Paul and Peter and James and John and others, all of those were simply letters that were written from one person to another or from one person to a group of people that God sort of got a hold of, and he was in the process of it this, to differentiate this letter from that letter. And these are the pastoral epistles. And Paul wrote these three books, again, two of them to a man named Timothy and a third one to a fellow by the name of Titus. He wrote them to them to give them some direction. These were young men that, and when I say young, we're talking about like 30s, whereas Paul might have been closer to 60, where Paul was writing, giving some instructions, giving some exhortation, guiding them, because Paul knew that his time was coming when he was going to pass off the scene and the church would continue on even without him. And so leaders needed to be raised up. And so Paul wrote these letters to these two men to help them in that process, to prepare them for that process, or even to equip them for the times when he would no longer be with them. 
And so these books, all of them written to individual men, two men, Timothy and Titus. But it's clear as you begin to, to read through these letters, it's clear that God had a plan that we would be studying in here today. That's one. So it was written to an individual, but it was written to all of us. But secondly, it's clear that there are some things that Timothy and Titus were going to learn that they were supposed to teach to the people in their congregations or in their communities if they oversaw a whole bunch of congregations. So never intended to just be some personal information or some private communications between these two guys, but rather to be shared with each of us. These letters of instruction, they were designed to be shared with and implemented implemented at the local body level. And when I use the term body, I'm talking about the church. We refer to that sometimes as the body of Christ, the church. And they, so they were to be implemented at that local level here. I think a very helpful verse for us that sort of summarizes the purpose of these three books is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's two verses, actually. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, it says this. Paul saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so we see Paul's goal, his instruction, at least one of him, uh, one of his intentions is that the church would know how to behave. Now notice what word that he uses there. He doesn't say that you might know you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God. And I'm glad he doesn't. I, it could work, but I'm glad he doesn't write the house of God there because a lot of times when we think of the house of God, we think of this building or maybe one a little more ornate that is out there, a little steeple and all that kind of stuff. We think that's the house of God. So notice the word that is translated here in our English languages. It's the household of God. And that gives you the sense of who lives in the house, the people that live in the house. Remember the church is not a building. The church is the people that make up the body that gathers in that particular building. And so Paul here is giving instructions for how the people that make up that church ought to behave, how they ought to live when they gather in the church building. His intention is to address, and I think this is helpful for us because now, oh, okay, so this can apply to my life, not just for us as a congregation, but even for us as individuals trying to walk out our faith daily. His intention is to address the overall life and practice of the men and women that make up the congregations that these guys we're leaders of. Does that make sense? The old, yeah? No? Okay, we'll try again. It, and then I'll ask again if it makes sense uh, to address the overall life and practice of the people that make up the congregations. Does that make sense? Fantastic. Very good. Even if it doesn't, I appreciate you being uh, gracious to me. So in here, we're going to see things about matters of church life. We're going to see how the church is to operate. We're going to see things on standard of behavior in the church. We're going to see things about the leadership of the church and what those leaders need to be like, what type of people they need to be like. So we'll see all these sorts of things as we make our way through here. These are the, three, these are the last three books that the Apostle Paul wrote. If you're not familiar, the Apostle Paul wrote, we know, at least 12 books in the New Testament. 
Some people think he also wrote the book of Hebrews, though no name is ever listed as to who the author of that book is. And so some people think he wrote that as well, which means he would have written 13 books in the New Testament. There's only 27 books in the New Testament. And so Paul wrote nearly or just about half of the entire New Testament. If you remember from our study of the book of Acts, right around chapter 10 or so, Paul sort of takes over as the main character of that book. He didn't write that book, but someone wrote the book, and so much of the material, Luke wrote it, so much of the material is about the Apostle Paul and what he did and where he went and the ministry that he had and so on. So Paul is this key figure uh, in the New Testament era, and God raised him up for a special purpose. God raised him up to, in so many ways, advance the, the kingdom of God and the church of God uh, throughout the world, the known world, at that particular point in time. And so here he is now writing the last three books that he would ever write. His life is just about to come to an end. Obviously, he doesn't know exactly when it will come to an end, but he can see time is getting short. I only have a few more years left. And his attention, it seems, begins to shift from going all over the world and planting these churches to begin to really focus his attention on who will be the leaders of those churches. Because he knows when he's off the scene, the direction of that church is very much going to be dependent upon who's leading that church. And so he writes these letters to Timothy and Titus. Let me take us back through the book of Acts. We studied that maybe a year ago here together. And as you remember... The Apostle Paul was on these various missionary journeys. You may recall that as he made his way back to a starting point uh, or to the ending point of one of his missionary journeys, he went back to the place it began. He went back to the city of Jerusalem. And we know the timing of that event. It was around the year 57 AD. Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem. This guy's trying to cause a riot of sorts as everybody else was yelling at him. He wasn't yelling at them. But he was the cause of the problem in people's minds. And so Paul was arrested, and he was going to have to go before the Roman authorities. Now, the Roman authorities weren't there in Jerusalem. The Roman authorities that Paul would have to go before were in the city of Caesarea, 100 miles or so, a coastal city. It was a Roman city, and that's where the governor of that region of the world with the Roman Empire controlled, that's where they were. And so Paul would have to go there, and he would have to appear before this Roman governor. You can read about this. It's Acts chapter 21 through Acts chapter 26. Now, Paul's there for about two years, and they bring him in now and again, and he, he gives a little speech, and people are like, that was interesting, or whatever, but nothing ever happens. And he's just staying there and staying there and staying there. He's like, this is ridiculous. What am I doing here? If you want to kill me, kill me. But if, if I didn't do anything wrong, then let me go. And they're like, well, tomorrow we'll have you. And it just goes on and on. Finally, he says, you know what? I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. And I appeal to Caesar. Now, you could, if you were a Roman citizen, you could appeal to the highest authority in the land, the emperor, Caesar. And you could say, I want to take my case to him. And whatever he decides is what he decides. If I live, I, I live. If I die, I die. And as the Roman governor, it was a man by the name of Festus, as he said, well, to Caesar... You have appealed, then to Caesar you will go. Now, Paul was in Caesarea, in Israel, the land of Israel, then it was Palestine. He would have to go all the way to Rome to stand before the Roman emperor, uh, the Caesar at that particular time. 1,500 or so miles away, he would have to sail there. 
And again, if you remember from our study or your reading of the book of Acts, that was a difficult trip for the Apostle Paul. They're sailing all around and stopping here and there and running into trouble and shipwrecks and having to stay on this side of this island to weather the winter and all kinds of stuff. And finally, they get to Rome. And Paul appears before Caesar uh, and is ultimately acquitted. Caesar said, yeah, this guy didn't do anything worthy of death or anything like that. You're free to go. Now, that's not recorded for us in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, while Paul's sitting in jail, waiting, kind of in jail, he was under house arrest. He had his own little house somewhere or apartment or something. But he's sitting there waiting to appeal before Caesar. That's where the book of Acts uh, comes to an end, just prior to his acquittal. It's from our study of church history, and there's plenty of study on this. It's from our study of church history that we learned that the Caesar said, all right, not guilty, you're free to go. It's from our study of church history that we learned that Paul then, for the next two years, began to travel around to other places again on a missionary journey. So we know from our study of Acts that Paul did three missionary journeys. In reality, we, we know from church history that he did a fourth. And that Paul began to make his way to southern Europe and western Europe. That Paul began to make his way to places like Spain. And then it was called Gaul or France. Some people even think he made his way all the way up to the British Isles. We don't know that for sure. That's a little more speculative. But we do know he went to Spain. We do know that he made his way to the, what we today call France. And he ministered there. And it was, it was during that time that he began to write the, these books that we have before us. And so we are looking around the years 62 and 63. And during this travel time, he writes 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. In the year 65 AD, you with me still, everybody? We have a chart? No charts. Sorry. In your head. Draw a chart. It's in the year 65 AD, so this is about two years later, that Paul is arrested again. And this time, it's not a house arrest. This time, it's not people coming and visiting and bringing him his parchments and so on and so forth. This time, he's thrown into a dungeon. This time, the emperor is a guy by the name of Nero, and Nero is nuts. He was really crazy. He would burn Christians to death as lanterns in his backyard, cover them with pitch and, and light them on fire, and then he would have a picnic in the backyard with his friends. So he was just a crazy, crazy man, and he really turned his attention against the Christian church. He wanted to destroy the Christian church. And so now Christianity was really becoming illegal in the land. Uh, Paul is arrested. Paul is thrown in a dungeon. And then ultimately Paul would be executed and he would, or he would be killed. It was then in that dungeon that he wrote the last of those three books, that he wrote 2 Timothy. So I'm, really, I'm looking forward to getting that because, man, you know, when you know this is it for me, you get rid of all the fluff, don't you? And, you, and so I'm looking forward to our time of really digging into that one as well. But in reality, all three of these books sort of take on that character. This is it. My days are, are, are short, I, and I have a lot to say that I need to say. Let me get rid of what doesn't need to be say, said, and let me really put down what you need to hear. Well, going back a little, immediately following that first imprisonment, Paul returned to the city of Ephesus, that key city, uh, in, and that's where Timothy is going to be asked to, to reign for, or to, uh, to lead the church from. Paul returns to that city, 
And when he returns to that city, he notices some things have happened in the city that cause him great concern, doctrinal things, uh, the practice in the church, the teachers that were making their way in. There were some things that were causing him some concern. And in, in actuality, it was a prediction of something he said was going to happen earlier, almost 10 years earlier. This is from Acts chapter 20. Paul had gathered with the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church there, and he said this, he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders. That's where we get the word in the, in the original. To, he says, Pay careful attention to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. When Paul goes back to Ephesus seven or eight years after that, that's what he encountered. That's what he saw. And that obviously concerned him because he knows that's going to impact what's going to happen with this church as it goes forward. It's less than a decade later just less than 10 years later, and these things that Paul anticipated had come about. Fierce wolves, the human beings, but what he likens to a fierce wolf, had come in among them, not sparing the flock. You can imagine what a wolf would do if it was sent in a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, amongst a bunch of sheep and how it would devour them. He says in verse 30 of that Acts passage, he says, men from among their own selves had arisen, and now they're speaking twisted things, notice, to draw away disciples after them. No longer pointing people to the Lord, as Paul did, as Timothy did, but instead drawing people after them so they can start their nice little congregation, whatever it might be. And they did it with twisted things. It seems that this is the time when some of that Gnostic influence that, that Will talked about even in our last study in the book of Colossians, Remember that word Gnostic, Gnostic means knowledge. It was those folks that had a secret knowledge that God gave to them. We all don't have it, and it's not in here, but God has given me a secret knowledge, and I'll share it with you. Oh, wow, thank you so much for entrusting me with the knowledge, secret knowledge that you had, drawing men off unto themselves. Paul sees this when he comes back into the town for this short period of time, and it concerns him. And one of his key intentions in writing this, look at verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That sound familiar? That's the Acts 20 passage, essentially. What Paul saw, he is now, saw in a vision, if you will, he's now seeing uh, right there in front of him. And no doubt, Paul started to deal right away with those false teachers. And he started to deal right away, particularly with the false teachings. Sometimes you don't go chase around all the false teachers, but you just teach truth so that people can see, for, see it for themselves. And really, that's the best way to handle it. Because if you're trying to name every single false teacher, 
you'll handle all these people, and then this guy will pop up, and that gal over there will pop up. So teach truth so people can discern for themselves that's false teaching. I don't have to worry so much about every single false teacher that is out there. All I need to do is focus on true teaching, and I'll be able to figure it out for myself. And so no doubt Paul dealt with this while he was there, but as we see in that verse 3 there, soon it became necessary for Paul to leave Ephesus, that city, that large city there, uh, basically by where Greece is and Turkey is today. And for him, it was to go, as it says, to the city of Macedonia, or the region of Macedonia, across the sea to the other side. Because I don't know why, we don't know why, we're never told, but I imagine they were having problems there. And Paul needed to get to that particular city. And so, since circumstances would not allow for him to remain there in Ephesus to put things in order, his decision then was to leave young Timothy. Again, Paul may be 60, Timothy may be 30 or so, to leave young Timothy there in charge of the affairs at Ephesus. Timothy would now serve as Paul's personal representative. I commission you to do there what I would do there if I could remain there. He, ra- he trusted Timothy so much, not only for Timothy's doctrinal soundness. I know you're not going to teach false things, Timothy. So he trusted him so much, not only for that reason, but also because Timothy had a heart for the people of God, which is so extremely important of your pastor or the person that's going to lead your congregation. They have to have a heart for the people of God. And so a lot of people, let me tell you, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than I am. Amen? Everyone's a little afraid to say it. But I'm not sure there's a lot of people that have the heart that I have for you, as Timothy had for his people. And that's what differentiates a pastor of a body of believers. Timothy loved them. Book of Philippians, Paul wrote this of this young minister, Timothy. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, that's the heart that he had. I don't know anyone who who genuinely cares for your welfare as Timothy does, Paul says. And Timothy now is going to be entrusted with a huge responsibility. Now, this wasn't just one little church here. This was the city of Ephesus. And all the believers made up the church there in Ephesus. And they they didn't have rooms like this. They would have gathered where they can get 20 people, 30 people, and another 20 over there, another 20 over there. And the church was scattered all about in that city. And Paul, or excuse me, Timothy now is going to be the overseer, the ultimate overseer of those congregations, we'll call them. This church in Ephesus, at this point in in history of uh, the first century Christianity, this is probably the most influential church in all the world in the first century. And this younger man, this 30-year-old guy, is going to be put into authority. And not only that, notice who he's succeeding, the Apostle Paul. This would be one thing if there was some schmo in charge and he messed everything up and then they bring Timothy in and you're like, well, you're going to be better than the other guy. Um, Now he's got to replace the Apostle Paul to do what he, and no doubt, and I like Paul better. 
Paul is much better at this job than you. Probably true. And so Paul knew that Timothy had a very difficult job in front of him. It was a very difficult task that Timothy was being entrusted with. And in many ways, the purpose of this first letter is to both uh, equip Timothy. These are things I need you to do when you get there. Great, I have a game plan. But also to encourage him in that task. Some people think that the purpose of this letter, it was to serve, if you will, as written authorization. Timothy, you're in charge, and, and here's your letter proving that you are in charge. If anybody should ask you. And so, friends, with that, why don't we start? First, amen, I got, I got an amen over there. Yes. Verse 1, it begins this way. Paul. Why don't we stop there? No, I'm just kidding. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord, our hope, I should say, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Standard procedure in writing a first century letter was to begin with the author's name. You know, if you still write letters, emails, I guess, oftentimes at the bottom, uh, we put our, our name there. We don't put it at the, the front. I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter of late, but you start reading, you're like, well, who wrote this? And you flip to the end. Okay, now I have a context for reading this thing here. Well, in that first century, you begin with two things, the author and the person it's being written to, almost always. And so you see in verse 1, it says Paul, and then you see in verse 2, to Timothy. So Paul is following that process here. As I said earlier, Paul would go on to write 12 New Testament books that we know of for certain. That's Again, that's almost half of the New Testament. He is the central figure of the New Testament, particularly the latter half of what the New Testament covers here. But Paul was not always Paul, the apostle. Paul was previously known as Saul. Now, Paul came from a family that had a strong Jewish influence, but also a strong Greek influence as well, uh, or Roman influence, I guess you might say. And so Paul almost certainly, as a kid, had two names. And if he was with his Jewish crowd, it was Saul. And if he was with the more the general population, it was Paul. But as we read through the, the scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts, we see that initially this man, he was known as Saul. And Saul was not always a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we dig a little bit more into our next study, what we discover is there was a time in this man's life when he sought not to build up the church of God, but rather to tear it down. Actually, there was a time in this man's life when his goal, his mission, was to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, it tells us this, But Saul, the man we're talking about, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let that first verse sink in there a little bit. If you want to throw that back up, it says that he was breathing threats and murder. Threats and murder. He so disagreed with this religion, this faith, that he was willing to put people to death that embraced this faith. 
In fact, in the, pa- the passage just a little bit before that Acts 9 there, we see that it was Paul that, who was a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. It was Paul that gave the authorization to put Stephen to death. So when it says he breathed threats and murders, those weren't just empty threats against people. People were actually killed as a result of the Apostle Paul's uh, anger with them for adopting this Christian faith. And so Paul, he's so against the faith at one point in his life, and yet here now he is referred to as an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and he refers to that Christ Jesus, notice, as our hope. C.S. Lewis, and a lot of you know him, we just finished one of our book studies, it was one of his books. C.S. Lewis was referred to as, by some, as the most unlikely convert. I think a case can be made that the Apostle Paul deserves that title, the most unlikeliest of converts. God got a hold of Paul's heart and radically transformed and changed this man. And that fact should give hope. It's the first word in our text here, Paul. But that fact that, that God got a hold of his heart and radically transformed him, it should give each one of us hope here this morning. Because whether you are here this morning wondering if God could ever get a hold of that crazy loved one in your life or that crazy friend in your life or that person that is so incredibly far from God, they'll never turn. Maybe this morning you're a person sitting here thinking of other people. Or perhaps this morning you're sitting here realizing I'm that other person. I'm that crazy one that could wonder if God could ever get a hold of my heart. Paul the Apostle should serve as a note of encouragement to every one of us in this room. And so if we think it's us, let Paul the Apostle be an encouragement to you. If we think of somebody else right now, let Paul the Apostle be an encouragement to you. God can take even the hardest of hearts and melt them, that he might make them into his image. And we'll continue to look at that as we move a little bit further in the book about how God did that changing work in Paul's life. But first, we read this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a sense in which every one of us that are Christians, followers of Jesus, there's a sense in which every one of us is an apostle. Because the word apostle, it simply means a sent one. And in that sense, every one of us is a sent one. Every one of us is sent forth on a mission from our supreme commander. Think of it as the commander giving his orders. And of course, that's Jesus. Because you remember, Jesus said to his disciples, including you and I that named the name of Christ, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so in that sense, every one of us is a sent one. Do you approach life that way? Do you approach life as if you're on mission, no matter where it is that God sends you? I think you should. I think we should. Paul, a sent one. The second thing that we notice, though, about this is the way in which Paul is using it. Remember, this letter would, in many ways, it would serve as Timothy's authorization. Who gave you the right to take leadership here? Well, I have it right here. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul. And so in that way, the Apostle Paul is using the word in the context of the position that it represented. That is, his official capacity, uh, his official capacity as a leader 
in God's early church. You remember during Jesus' earthly ministry that he had a whole bunch of people that were beginning to follow him. Scores of people, we'll say. And Jesus called 12 of them. He pulled 12 of them aside and he named them as apostles. They would serve in that role. You know their names, or you might know some of their names. You can read them, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6. Paul was not one of those 12. Paul wasn't even a believer in Jesus Christ at that time. There's no record of Paul ever physically interacting with Jesus during his days. He might have. He might have had contact with him or been in the same locale with him, but he wasn't a follower of his. That doesn't come until a number of years after Jesus has died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. It's many years later, however, that the Lord would get a hold of Paul, and he would call him to that role among those 12, or 11, because you know the story of Judas. And he would call him to that particular role, but he would set him apart to a unique aspect of that role. Those guys, initially at least, primarily stayed in the area of Israel. Paul would go to the, as far as the world would take him. When Paul was converted to the faith, we read this is what happened. He, he lost his eyesight, he was blinded. God raised up another disciple, said, I want you to go, I want you to pray for him that he would be healed. That disciple's name is Ananias. Son, Lord, this guy's crazy. He's putting everybody to death. Lord, he's not really blind. He's trying to trick us, find out who all the Christians are, and he's going to kill us. Lord, I don't want to do it. No, you need to do it. I'm making up some of the story. But he goes, he lays his hand on this man who killed some of his friends or had them killed. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And in that, the Lord said to him, after his objection, Lord, I can't go to this guy. He's killing people. The Lord said this. The Lord said, no, go, for he is my chosen instrument or a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings uh, and the children of Israel. At another point in Paul's ministry, he would say these words. He says, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and thus I magnify my ministry. So Paul, everywhere he went, he talked to Jewish people. He was a Jew. He wanted to win his brothers and his sisters to Jesus. But his ministry was to the Gentiles. And so he would go all over the world trying to bring Jesus to these cultures that had never heard about Jesus and maybe didn't have much familiarity even with Judaism. And so here we are now some 30 years later following that miraculous conversion, and we have that Apostle Paul writing an apostolic letter with the authority of an apostolic letter, an apostle, writing that letter to his protege, empowering him to authoritatively lead even as he authoritatively led. And so again, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now you will notice that Paul says, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. I think there's a whole lot in this verse that I want to draw our attention to. But the first one is the way in which he refers to God. So you see there in that verse, it talks about God our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. The, the opening, the God our Savior, typically that's who we would think of when we're thinking of God the Father. 
And obviously Christ Jesus is God the Son. And many times when people think of God the Father, they think of sort of this angry judge. Sometimes we think of him as Santa Claus. I know some people do. And, or Grandpa, and, you know, he always loves us. He's so nice, or whatever. But a lot of times people think of God as judge. God's out to get me. I better be careful. i got to keep these things hidden from God, or he'll judge me. Notice how Paul thinks of God the Father. He thinks of him as God our Savior. He thinks of him as God our Savior. I think that is just so significant. How do you see God? When you think about him, when you look at him, how do you see him? Do you see him as one you need to hide from? Do you see him as one, he better not see the things that I'm doing or he's going to get me and the lightning bolts? Or do you see him as one that cares for you and loves you and wants you and to be in relationship with you? That's how Paul knew God our Savior or God the Savior there. Notice also this. He refers to God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. He links the two together. You see that there? Now think about how weird that would sound if it read something like this. God our Savior and Michael the Archangel. Doesn't make sense. Or if it said, God our Savior and the 12 apostles, I write this letter to you. That doesn't make sense. Those those two don't belong in the same category, do they? The apostles are, are not on the same level as God the Father. Michael the Archangel, Mary, anyone, is not on the same level as God the Father. And yet Paul who was very much a monotheist. Remember, he came out of the strictest sect of the Jews. He puts God our Father and Jesus Christ our hope right on the same line here. This is a very clear example of Paul's concept and belief and understanding that whereas we may have, there's three persons to the Godhead, there's only one God. And he puts Jesus Christ and the Father right on that same level there. It's clear evidence of his conviction concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see in this passage, he says, by the command of that God and Jesus. That word command there, it's a military term in the first century Greek language. And it references, as you can imagine, a military command. It's a charge by a superior to a subordinate that must be followed. And so I am an apostle by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ, our hope. This calling on Paul's life wasn't a suggestion from God. That Paul, you know, you should consider ministry. You might do pretty well there. This wasn't a suggestion from God. It was a command. I think of the prophet Jeremiah and how that message, there was a point where Jeremiah was like, you know what, I'm done sharing it. Nobody wants to hear it anyway. And then it would begin to burn within him. And he had to share it with another Paul was commanded by God to do what he was doing and to fill the role that he was fulfilling. He was ordered by God to serve as an apostle, and as a subordinate, he had to fulfill that particular role. We see there, as it goes on, God our Savior, not God our judge, but God our Savior. And I think something happens when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. I think this mindset of fearing God begins to go away, and it begins to be replaced with loving God. Now, we're always called to fear God and to walk in fear of God. But I'll tell you, what's the greatest motivator? Love. I don't do what I do and don't not do what I shouldn't do. I don't even know if that makes sense. Because I'm afraid of God. I do what I do and I don't do what I don't do because I love God. 
And I don't want my, my relationship hindered with God, which sin does. And so I don't look to God as my judge. I look to him as my savior. You remember what Jesus said. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now the passage goes on to say, for the world was condemned already. It was already going to be held responsible for its sin. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his son into the world to save the world. God our Savior. That uh, John 3.17 passage, obviously it comes right before John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would trust in him, believe in him, would not perish but have eternal life. Again, I ask the question, how do you see God when you think about your relationship with him? Do you see him as one you cower from and hide from? Or do you see him as one you run to? Because you know him to be not your judge, but your savior. If you see God only as your judge, that may be an indicator of where you are in your relationship with him. And I'd encourage you, get right with God. Paul sees him as his savior. Notice that's not it, though. He sees him as his hope. In fact, notice he says here, he sees him as our hope. That's such a, an important word to the Apostle Paul, that word hope. We named one of our kids hope because of how important that concept is to our faith. That we can live in this world with hope. Right now she's at college, but when she's home, we wanted her to be in our house. That's a little joke there. It's an important word in Paul's writings. Paul uses it 34 different times in his epistles. Now when we use the word hope, Often we do so to convey wishful thinking. Will the Phillies make it back to the World Series? Oh, I hope so. It's wishful thinking. Will the Mets? That's really wishful thinking, as you know. That's not how the term is used, though, in the scriptures. Rather than being a term that expresses wishful thinking, hope, in the New Testament sense of the term, is a confident and a joyful expectation. It's a confident and a joyful expectation. Jesus himself is referred to as the blessed hope. And it's in the context of knowing that he is coming. And it's this idea of, and I can't wait. It's a confident and a joyful expectation. That's how this word hope is used in the New Testament. But also notice this. Our hope as Christians, followers of Christ, our hope is not a what, but a who. Our hope is not a what, but a who. Jesus, Christ Jesus, as it says there, is our hope. And so what's the reason for me being in right relationship with God? What's the reason that I expect to be in heaven when I die? What's the reason that I am confident that I can live a life of godliness this side of heaven? And the answer to every one of those questions is Jesus. Are you confident you can live a life of godliness in this this side of heaven, absolutely, because I get up every day and I read my Bible and I make sure I do what I'm supposed to be doing. That's not the hope of the scripture. Are you confident you're going to heaven? Absolutely, because I go to church every Sunday. I go on Wednesday nights there. I want to make sure and I do everything I'm supposed to do. So I'm confident I'll get to heaven. That's not what the scripture teaches. Our hope is a person. It's not in what we do or don't do. It's a person. Our hope is Jesus. 
I don't think that I can be in right relationship with God because of my good works. My hope is being in right relationship with Jesus. And again, I don't seek to live in a godly manner in this life in my own strength. My hope is Jesus. Jesus doesn't give us hope. Jesus is our hope. This is the testimony of Scripture, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is our hope. He is our hope. And so again, if you're not absolutely certain on that point, the reason very well may be that you have not yet entered into a right relationship with God that only through his Son can come to pass. Here we're told Jesus is our hope. What's interesting, the book of Ephesians refers to Jesus as our peace. So here, he's our hope. Ephesians, he's our peace. Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Why do I have peace with God? A who? Because of Jesus. Colossians tells us not that he's our hope and not that he's our peace, but Colossians tells us that he's our life. Colossians chapter 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So notice that. Christ is our peace. That means he deals with our, the problem of our sin in our past. Sin separates us from God. He deals with that. He's our peace. He is our life. That means he deals with the problem of the power of sin in the present. And so we can walk in godliness because Christ is our life. As we're dependent upon him and fellowshipping him and interacting with him and maintaining relationship with him, we can walk the way that he would have us to walk because Christ is our life. And then as it says here in this passage, he is our hope. So that we can go forward with whatever it is that we're facing on this side of heaven with the confident and joyful expectation that there is a deliverance that is coming. He is our peace. He is our life. He is our hope. And as we begin this new book of study, I think this is a great opportunity. Look, if you, you're kind of trying to figure some things out with the faith and what, what is this Christian thing going on and you're just sort of like plugging in the church here, I think this is a great opportunity for you to get right with God today. Not put it off when this book is over, then I'm going to get right with God, or, you know, I'll just keep shopping around here and try to figure it. Today is the perfect day. And I want to encourage each one of us here to confidently allow Jesus to deal with your past so that you might have peace, to give you power for the present so that your life might be found in him, and then finally to get your eyes fixed on heaven that you might joyfully and confidently await that which he has for us from heaven. And so with that, we're going to bring our first study of the book of Timothy. There's 113 verses in 1 Timothy. Today we did one. <laughs> so I, I did the math. We are on pace to finish up this study June 2025. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word. Lord, I'm just grateful for the Apostle Paul's example. He did not in any way deserve to be forgiven and to be saved. Lord, he'll even testify he did some horrible things to your children. 
He said some terrible things about your son. He was far, he was distant. There was a hardness of heart that allowed him to do the things that he did. And yet in your grace and in your mercy and in your kindness and in your love and in your patience, you entered into his life. You revealed yourself to him. In a moment, you opened up his heart that he might receive. And in a moment, he became a new creation. That old has passed away and everything became new in a moment. And Lord, in this room, we may not have been as, as bad as the Apostle Paul and done such horrible things that he did. But Lord, there are scores of us, hundreds of us in this room that you got a hold of our hearts in the same way. And so, Father, I'm praying for us as a church that we would rest in that wonderful reality. I'm a new creation in Christ. I pray for those that are gathered here that don't yet know you. Lord, that through our study of this book, you would open up their hearts to believe. You would pour out your spirit in a new and a fresh way. Lord, that we would know your peace, we'd walk in your life, and we'd kind of enjoy the hope of eternity. So bless us, Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.